You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 33. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with Mike Marshall, an expert on the endangered golden-cheeked warbler. The conversation is a part of this month's series on the impacts of noise pollution on birds. However, as Mike explains, the research that he's been conducting thus far appears to show that the golden-cheeked warbler is unaffected by noise pollution. This isn't too surprising. In last week's conversation with noise pollution experts Jesse Barber and Heidi Ware, it was explained that in their research, while overall bird abundance declined in the presence of road noise, there were individual species that actually increased in abundance in the presence of road noise. While it appears as though the golden-cheeked warbler may be one of those species that is not impacted in a significant way by noise pollution, there are numerous other factors that are threatening this endangered species. We talked with Mike about a number of these threats, which include forest fragmentation and increased development within the bird's small breeding range in central Texas. We also get some background on how and why the golden-cheeked warbler was listed under the Endangered Species Act and what impact this listing has had on the species. Overall, a fascinating conversation about the state of wildlife conservation efforts in Texas and one of the state's most emblematic birds. Let's jump in. All right. I am here with Mike Marshall, who is an extension associate with the Texas A&M Institute of Renewable Natural Resources. How are you doing, Mike? Doing great. Thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Um, I want to start off by getting an introduction to the golden-cheeked warbler. Um, this, this is a species that that I'm guessing a, a lot of our listeners have, have maybe never even heard of, or you know maybe heard of only in the context of uh, its its endangered species listing. Um, so maybe you can just start off by giving us a little bit of uh, sort of basic natural history on this species. Sure. So it's uh, the golden cheeked warbler. Is it's a migratory songbird. So the interesting thing about this particular warbler species, especially if you're in Texas, is it's the only bird whose breeding range is exclusively only in the state of Texas. So it has a very small breeding range in central Texas. Um, Essentially, it'll fly from Central America and Southern Mexico during about March, arrive in its breeding grounds um, in early March to, to late March, early April, stick around for the breeding season until about the end of June beginning of July. And uh, one of the things that um, really led to it becoming endangered, which this bird was listed in the uh, early 90s, an emergency listing, was its tendency to be associated with just one tree species, and that's ash juniper. And so basically it won't build its nest out of anything else except for that one species of tree. And it has to be a mature ash juniper. So Basically, it needs to be at least 50 years old, that tree, so that the bark starts to shred. And then it can pull those strips off and build its nest. So you won't find a warbler anywhere where there's not ash juniper. Gotcha. That's that's fascinating. And, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't 
was not aware of that. My, my next question was, you know, what, what type of ecosystems does, does this bird live in? And so um, uh, I, I guess it needs sort of mature forests um, that, that have these ash juniper trees present. Yeah, yeah, that, that's correct. So the ash juniper is certainly something that uh, people have tended to focus on since that makes the warbler very unique. But the oak component is just as important. So uh, some of the studies that have been done recently, in fact, one of the ones I was involved in, my thesis work, looked a little bit more closely at that oak component. So, you know, imagine in central Texas, we don't have these, you know, gigantic pine forests. So when you think of a forest, it's really not gigantic trees, but it's a mature forest. And within that, you can have a variety of oaks. And what we discovered is they actually seem to prefer certain oaks over others because of the arthropod community that's on them. So we've been learning a lot about these birds recently in terms of getting away from just this kind of narrow view of ash juniper, ash juniper. We're noticing that, you know, the oaks are really just as important to the species as well. Is, is it safe to say that, that the loss of this mature uh, uh, forest is sort of one of the primary reasons for the bird's decline? Uh, you're absolutely correct. And just to expand on that a little bit, um, just for folks that maybe aren't as familiar with Texas. So when I'm, I'm speaking of central Texas, we're including Austin and San Antonio, two of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the country. And so during that time, and again, this was an emergency listing, which is somewhat rare in terms of the listing process. So basically what they were showing was these sort of subdivisions that were expanding outside of Austin and San Antonio. Um, That was the perceived threat to the habitat. Um, At the time, there was really only one or two people that were kind of looking at these birds. And so there were some estimates made on the amount of habitat and the number of birds that, you know, of course, as we've learned more, perhaps we're an underestimate of the number of birds. But at the time, it seemed like there weren't very many and that their habitat was at risk from mainly development, especially residential and suburban development. So how has the listing had an impact on that? Has, has, uh, you know, uh, I mean, how's the population been doing since that listing? And has the listing had a direct impact on uh, development in these areas? Yeah, it sure has. So um, it, certainly when the species is listed as endangered, now you have to do some sort of mitigation, right? So uh, with, with the golden-cheeked warbler, you, you've seen a lot of uh, HCPs or habitat conservation plans. You've seen a lot also very unique type of uh, plans, um, and I'll just briefly touch on one. Fort Hood, which I'll be talking about a little bit later in terms of this is one of those kind of bastions of of golden cheek warblers. You know, there's a lot of habitat. It's on a military base. So, of course, you know, the, the wildlife component is very important. They usually, you know, keep a lot of that habitat intact. Um, and at the same time, the military needs to conduct training activities. So they kind of came up with this unique program, program called the Recovery Credit System which was kind of a temporary program where landowners from around the base would actually, you know, basically not touch habitat on their property in order for Fort Hood to be able to mitigate for some of their training. So there were actually a lot of really clever things that kind of came out of that species being listed. And I would say all in all, um, it's been very successful. Um, There have been recent studies that have come out to indicate that rather than having somewhere between, say, five to 20,000, and I'm just kind of 
you know, there were numbers all over the place when it was listed, but, you know, very low numbers. Now there have been some studies indicating that there may be hundreds of thousands of warblers. So now that's not saying that we've actually recovered those warblers to those numbers, but that may indicate that we weren't looking hard enough on say private property, you know, for these birds. So, um, you know, I think one thing I want to mention too, if I could go back to the, the habitat. So in Texas, you know, if you've ever been to the hill country or, or folks know what the hill country means, it's a very beautiful area in central Texas, rolling hills. Well, from the perspective of a rancher or, you know, sometimes a developer, those are areas that are, are hard to sort of use anyways, especially for, uh, for grazing. So a lot of times what, you know, might have been potentially ignored in the beginning was the fact that there was a lot of warbler habitat on private land. Because Texas is 96% privately owned. So, you know, if you, if you kind of didn't go look for the birds on those private lands, you could potentially have been, you know, missing part of the puzzle. So you know, that's a little bit off topic, but I think it's important to kind of remember that uh, Texas is very different than a lot of other states where most of the land's privately owned. So you're going to find most of the birds there. It's interesting to hear that those population estimates have increased so dramatically as a result of this increased research effort um, tied to this species. Um, and I, I guess I'm guessing that, you know, because there's so much fluctuation and there has been so much fluctuation in these population estimates that it's probably pretty difficult to get a handle on whether or not these population declines have been stopped or maybe the population has increased, you know, just getting a handle on sort of the the overall status of golden cheek warbler populations is probably pretty difficult. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Um, you know, it's especially difficult, and this is the case with, with any species, that um, it's often a little bit easier to do sort of site-specific, you know, studies where you could say, well, we're pretty confident we have, say, around 7,000 of these birds on this base, but it gets a little bit more problematic when you try to apply those site-specific studies to the entire range of the golden cheek warbler. Um, because although it is mature oak juniper forest, that forest does tend to vary as you go south to north and east to west. So what I think has been really unique about some of the most recent studies that have come out, and there you know, certainly some uh, contentiousness behind you know, methodologies and whatnot, but the sampling frame for the most recent studies were, was the entire range of the golden cheek warbler and private property was sampled as well as public property. So you had this more inclusive kind of snapshot of what the warbler habitat looked like across the entire state. So I think that has a lot to do with the numbers um, being so dramatically different. And I will say that, you know, as we speak now, there are certainly some, you know, contentious feelings on both sides, you know, which number's correct and which one's not. So that's kind of where we are in terms of, of estimating numbers and then not just estimating numbers, but answering that question, are we recovering the species? Um, so I, I would say that we're, we're not quite sure, but um, there's been a lot of information in the last five years or so that has, um, is going to help us get there. I'm curious to hear about how you got involved in Golden Cheek Warbler research initially. Sure. So um, even before I started working with the bird, I actually graduated high school in Austin. I went to 
uh, the University of Texas um, in Austin, and I always knew about the Golden Chief Warbler. I mean, you just if you live in that area, you know that bird. You know you're 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 proud of that bird. You know it, it means something to you. Um, and so the fact that I kind of accidentally fell into a field technician job involving the warbler was really pretty cool. So in 2008, I worked as a technician on Fort Hood with the golden cheeked warbler, and uh, it was an impact assessment study, which is really a lot of what I did during my graduate career. I came on immediately in 2008 as a uh, research associate and graduate student um, with Texas A&M University and uh, got my master's at Texas A&M working with the Golden Cheek Warbler. And as soon as I graduated, I continued to work with the Warbler on Fort Hood until the end of 2012. So really I have about five, six years, um, about five, uh, working with the bird. And it's been mainly on Fort Hood, but I've also done some sampling across the state. And the two main studies that I was involved with on Fort Hood were, one, an impact assessment, looking at the potential impact of land management activities and troop training on the Golden Cheek Warbler. And then two was my thesis work, which was looking at um, this interesting pattern where we saw that Golden cheek warblers tended to breed a lot more successfully in one type of ecological site than another. And just to kind of you know, remind people if they aren't familiar with the term ecological site, that basically means that certain areas have certain soil types and slopes and precipitation regimes that will end up having different plant communities. So, for example, in warbler habitat, one ecological site might have ash juniper and lots of post oak whereas another one might have lots of ash juniper and Spanish oak. And we were noticing that if you compared those two ecological sites, there were drastic differences in reproductive success. So those were the the two main things I worked on with the warbler um, in my time with Texas A&M as a grad student. So maybe we can start off here uh, in, in delving into this research that you've been involved in. Maybe we can start off just talking a little bit about your thesis research. And I'm curious to hear, you know, what those differences were in these two different ecosystem types uh, that you were studying. You know, what, what you, you said that there were drastic differences, um, you know, between these two different uh, sort of plant communities within the range of this warbler. Uh, maybe you can, you know, jump into a little bit more detail on what those differences were um, and and what you think was causing them. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, you know, I should probably have these numbers memorized, but it's pretty close to the difference between one ecological site, and this one's called the Redlands. So this is kind of clay soil, red soil. Looks like warbler habitat, just like any other thing, but it has post oak as the main oak species. That when we were uh, measuring pairing success and fledgling success, pairing success was, you know, 80 to 90%. Um, well, I'm sorry. And the red ones, it was 60 to 70 and it's fledgling success was like anywhere between 30 to 50% where we looked at another ecological site called low stony Hill. This was more your rocky terrain, your hillsides, your Spanish oak, your white oaks. Um, and they were doing, say, 90% pairing success and 80% to 90% fledging success. So they were doing quite a bit better in this area um, called Low Stony Hill. So obviously part of my thesis was to kind of try to answer that question, why? What's the mechanism? And what I 
looked at because there are a lot of things you could look at, like predators, food, you know, different things. But what I really want to do is look at food availability because I didn't have any reason to think the predators would be different since it was uh, mature ash, juniper, oak, woodland habitat. So we looked at food availability by doing two things. We did foraging observations where we follow the bird around and indicate all the behaviors it exhibited while foraging. And we also sampled the uh, trees in the area, meaning the oaks and the juniper, the dominant species. And we would try to correlate these differences in foraging behavior with food availability. And what we ended up noticing was that although the actual density of arthropods was similar between the two ecological sites, that they had a very different diversity of arthropods. And um, so there were the, the things that the warblers liked to eat were like these green worms, these lepidopteran uh, caterpillars emerging. There were a lot of them in the ecological site that they were successful in. So the idea here being that if the bird in the redland site, which is the poor quality site, has to spend more time looking for food, then they're going to spend less time taking care of their young and pairing with a female. So that that came out in the condor in, in 2013. Um, and so that uh, that's pretty much a summary of, of that study and my thesis. It definitely sounds to me like this research has the potential to have some really important implications for management of the species. Yeah, I think so, especially if you just take the golden cheek warbler, for example, and let's bring it back to Fort Hood. If Fort Hood is going to have to impact habitat regardless, well, they can make a more informed decision by potentially saying, well, we probably ought to go into this, you know, redlands habitat where they're not doing as well. You know, um, uh, we can aim our our uh, land management activities there instead of disturbing the highest quality habitat. So I think anytime you're able to to go from simple uh, modeling of number of birds and densities and really start to look at habitat quality, then I think you start getting a lot more information that you can make informed management decisions from. I, I want to jump into uh, this this other research project um, about the golden cheek warbler that, that you mentioned you're involved in, um, which is the impact of these military training exercises at Fort Hood. And I'm really fascinated to learn uh, sort of more specifically what you were looking at. You know, like what what are these uh, specific, I, I guess, what is it about these military training training exercises that um, that you were maybe initially suspecting might have an impact on this warbler? Sure. So I, I think um, I'd be remiss to not give a little bit of background just on kind of Fort Hood because military bases can vary and and what they do, what activities you know they're involved in. And Fort Hood, first of all, is is a, an army base. It's gigantic. It's two hundred and fifty um, thousand acres. Um, most of it very wild and. Previously, they focused on a lot of mechanized training. So we're talking helicopters, tanks, heavy-duty stuff like that. Well, kind of during the Afghanistan and Iraq conflict, they started kind of switching a little bit when the bases realigned to, to focusing on infantry training. And so that what that really did was it started making the military interested in using different parts of the base that they weren't using before. So, for example, warbler habitat. If you can imagine you're kind of in the woods, then you've got above your head cover, 
which is good from a foot soldier's perspective. But the problem is, is this warbler habitat, because we've kind of taken away fire from the equation. You know, we tend to suppress fire nowadays. The understory gets really, really thick. So what they wanted to do was go in and kind of punch little lanes through that habitat and not disturb the canopy so soldiers could move through it and see each other and go towards an objective. And so they hadn't really ever tried anything like this before. And and I would say rather than coming in and suspecting that there would be an impact, I actually suspected there might not be an impact because you weren't touching the canopy. But of course you can't know for sure unless you measure that impact. So the first impact we were interested in was what was the impact of actually thinning that vegetation out? Now, the second, which is more of an indirect impact, would be once they do go in there and start training within habitat, what is the impact of that foot traffic, mainly through noise? So those were kind of the two impacts that we we looked at over a four- to five-year period. Gotcha. Yeah, and it, it definitely makes sense, as you said, that – you know, clearing out this understory, it, it seems like, I mean, it seems to me like that could potentially even have a beneficial impact on the species, you know, right? Because it's in this fire adapted ecosystem where fire has been suppressed for probably a long time, right? So if you go through and clear out and sort of replicate, you know, uh, uh, the, the role that fire would play by mechanically removing, you know, some of that, that understory, um, seems like that could potentially have a beneficial impact. I'm curious to know what, what you uh, found out through that research. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're actually about to submit this manuscript that we're talking about here about the thinning. Um, and in it, we, we sort of talk about it being almost like an ecological forestry technique, which is not new to a lot of forestry people or people that have worked with birds and some of these uh, pine ecosystems. Um, where it actually improves the habitat for a lot of species. And what we ended up finding was that there was certainly no negative impact from the clearing, and ecosite, again, had a lot to do with what the response was. So in areas where you had the low Stony Hill ecological site, which is the good one, and you went in and thinned, we saw increases in numbers of birds coming into those areas. And we saw no negative impact to their reproductive success. So in a sense, it seemed as if we improved the habitat in terms of, of density. Um, and more importantly, there didn't we didn't seem to push them out of the habitat or uh, make it less likely that they would pair or any of that um, stuff. And what I think is pretty convincing about the impact assessment we did is that we had pre and post data we have multiple control sites and we did it over a five-year period so you know that's not very typical of an impact assessment a typical impact assessment would be oh there's an oil spill we have no pre-treatment data we have to go out and measure it so you know we had the uh, the uh, i don't know if you want to say it's luck but we just we knew what was going to happen where it was going to happen and so we could set up a proper study design. And and I was very happy with that. And I don't think we were too surprised by the results, which show that if you thin the habitat in the way that they did, so they didn't go out and take out all the understory. They just took out, you can imagine, almost like Swiss cheese. They like punched holes through the understory. So you still had understory all around you. It just lanes were created. And um, I think it could have application beyond just military training. For instance, um, 
it, you know, is this a possibility of creating a fire break at the edge of habitat? So wildfire might be suppressed by not burning through that understory. So, you know, I think it was an interesting study. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I think we showed that um, there was no impact, uh, negative impact, and there might have been some positive results associated with that thinning treatment. So I'm, I'm curious to hear about this, this other facet of the study where you're looking at the impact of these military training exercises on the birds. Um, and you, you mentioned that you were specifically looking at, uh, or, or I guess you suspected that, you know, the greatest uh, potential impact of that uh, military training exercise on the birds would be the noise that it creates, right? Yeah, we we definitely thought that that was something that we had to look at. Um, interestingly, this is kind of a funny story. This happens a lot in, in science. You you have all these good ideas, right? So so we set up all this fancy equipment out there. We had trail masters to to measure the pre and post movement through these lanes. We had decibel meters to measure the increase in noise during training activities, and we had what we call. Uh, ARU's automatic recording units, which essentially records everything out there, and we use a computer program with an algorithm that can pull out golden cheek warbler songs. So what we're doing is analyzing, are they changing their vocalizations in response to increases in noise? So we had this really fancy setup, and so our idea, right, logically would be, okay, when we know there's a training activity, we're going to see an increase in movement and noise, and we'll just see if there was some response from a vocalization perspective, or at the end of the day, you know, did they leave or, or not breathe successfully? Well, what we ended up finding out was our study sites are on a military base. So, you know, news just in, military bases are loud. So, <laughs> so we ended up finding out that it was just generally loud there anyways, and that a bomb going off a half a mile away was louder than any troops moving through the understory. So, <laughs> so what we ended up, but, you know, all's not lost. We still got to look at things like well, hey, when we saw spikes and noise, what was happening with the vocalizations? Um, and, of course, we have this uh, uh, data, uh, productivity data, pairing success and fledgling success. So if I just break those down, pairing success and fledgling success uh, had absolutely no correlation with noise. Um, and with in terms of vocalization, we looked at a lot of different things. So we looked at uh, frequency. So theoretically, in this kind of study, you would expect a bird's low frequency to get higher in the presence of background noise. The reason being your, your low register, if you, you raise that up high, it goes above that background noise. And we actually did not see that occur. And we looked at things like bandwidth, which is a relationship between a low and high frequency. People tend to think that that gets smaller if they have a reaction to noise. We didn't see any reaction from these birds to increases in noise with their vocalizations. Um, so, and then I'll just give you my personal opinion on this. If we had seen a change in vocalizations, but they were still breeding successfully, I would argue that the most important part was that they were still there and they were breeding successfully. <laughs> they might just be habituating their noise, their vocalizations to that noise. 
when you were talking about the first component of this research, you talked about the study design, right? And how you were able to set up these really solid control sites and, you know, really get a really good sense of, uh, you know, that, that you're really confident about those results, you know, showing um, that this, uh, you know, this, this reduction in the understory, you know, had uh, – these positive effects, at least in this one ecosystem type on the birds. Um, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, in, in, in this circumstance that you were in, in, in this facet of the study where you kind of expected there to be an increase in noise and it turned out there, there, there really wasn't. And that, it, you know, the, these areas where the birds had been living, it, it was actually pretty loud to start out with. Um, I, I, I mean, did, did you try did did you compare those results to you know maybe a control site you know elsewhere in in another part of the state that um, that that is a lot quieter? So we definitely have all of that data, and I would even say that uh, as opposed to comparing something, say you know hundred miles away, uh, we actually were able to you know if we thought it was appropriate to compare to a study site that was literally three miles away, which was quite a bit. Um, it wasn't as loud. So, I mean, it really makes a difference when you get that far away from the impact area. However, it was not ecologically similar, which I'll bring back to the eco site again. One other area where we were doing other studies, but still set up some of these ARUs and did other things was an area of large, unfragmented warbler habitat. I mean, just a sea of habitat for miles and miles and miles, and it's all low stony hill. So, you know, we knew from my thesis work that this is just going to be the best of the best habitat. So we don't want to compare that to the study site where they went in and really focused on these training maneuvers uh, in another study site that was composed of half low stony hill, half red ones. It just kind of got complicated. And, and one of the things that we think is really important in, in conducting an impact assessment is, is that your controls and your treated areas are ecologically similar. And um, we just didn't have that case uh, on Fort Hood. Um, but again, we were looking at the vocalization change as something that was kind of interesting and the Army wanted us to look at. For whatever reason, I wasn't there during the contract negotiations. But what we were more concerned about was in the presence of the training, whether that was because of noise or because of, you know, 50 soldiers running by a nest, you know, whatever that reason was for a disturbance. We wanted to know if that was impacting the number of birds that were there, their pairing success and fledgling success. So kind of at the end of the day, that's what we sort of leaned back on and said. Hey, we have multiple years of data that suggests that anytime there was training activities in here, these birds did well from season to season to season. And that's kind of what we were left with. From the perspective of, of you know, these folks at Fort Hood, right, that would be the most important question to answer is, you know, does this sort of increased use of these uh, these habitat areas, uh, I mean, is that having an impact on the birds? And it's, it's neat to see that, you know, based on this research, it, it doesn't seem like it, it is really having uh, uh, any, any impact. Um, I guess, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, there's, there's this bigger question of, you know, what effect, if any, does 
noise pollution in general have on this species. Um, and I know that there has been, been other research conducted um, in, in, in other parts of the state that, that maybe suggests that, there, that road noise could be having a, a, a negative impact on golden cheek warbler, warbler populations. I, I guess I'm just looking for your sort of uh, sense of, you know, what, where does this factor, this, this uh, uh, noise pollution factor, you know, where does that sort of play in um, as far, you know, in, in this sort of list of like p- potential negative impacts uh, on the species? Yeah, so tended to see just on some preliminary data, which is, you know, not even published in the form of a report, but there's uh, studies with, with TxDOT and um, kind of looking and investigating impacts of road noise and whatnot. And I think the idea being here, like, what is the appropriate sort of buffer for mitigation purposes, you know, when you build a road? And and, and what we've tended to see with, the, with these birds, which is certainly different than some other birds that people have studied, is that they tend to habituate pretty well to the noise. So if I were going to kind of throw a bunch of different threats out there and sort of rank them in terms of, of the golden cheek warbler, you know, number one is habitat loss and fragmentation. So they're, they're pretty sensitive to patch size. Um, there's been studies to indicate that, um, you know, if you go below X acres, you know, of a patch of habitat that they're just not going to successfully breed in it. Um, so number one's that. Uh, habitat loss. Habitat fragmentation is also a big deal in the sense that brown-headed cowbirds also parasitize their nests. And if you you fragment these patches to a certain degree, you know, uh, it's been shown with other species that you can increase cowbird parasitism. Uh, I can't say that that's exactly what's happened with the golden cheek warbler, but, you know, in my opinion, that would be, you know, something pretty important. Um, and noise, it just is so situational, you know. Um, Fort Hood's a very different scenario. I mean, they've been actively firing weapons out there for decades, and these birds keep coming back and they keep breeding. So, you know, apparently if there's habitat there and it's allowed, they'll come back and they'll breed just fine. Now, what are the implications of putting a road, a brand new road, and increasing traffic in an area that never had it? You know, the jury's still out on that one. And I think the, the, um, any report or any publications that come out from the, the Texas, Texas Department of Transportation and, and A&M looking at those impacts will, will be important, you know, to, to kind of look at that because, you know, not to get off the bird too much, but a lot of one of the things that our institute does too is look at land trends um, in terms of uh, you know the, the increase in population, a uh, loss of rural you know lands, those kinds of things, and, and we know that Texas is is exploding both in terms of number of people, uh, loss of rural lands, uh, increase in roads. So that's something that we're going to have to get our our hand, head wrapped around. So you're you're no longer working with golden cheek warblers, but you're still um, working uh, working with the folks at Fort Hood, or you moved on to a different project. So I actually, it's kind of funny. I've never thought I'd end up in this situation, but I, I kind of am in this place I really like, where I'm sort of the liaison between the hardcore research and landowners. So uh, you know, again, Texas being a privately owned state, if you don't know how to work with private landowners, you're not going to recover a species. So. 
you know, I tend to do a lot of things of like going out and um, doing programs, uh, showing landowners how to properly graze so they can maintain their native grasses, let them know what warbler habitat is and why they can keep it and actually make money off of that. And they wouldn't use it anyway. So why not just keep it? Because a lot of landowners around here, when they hear about the warbler and they think they have habitat, man, they just want to knock that stuff down because they don't want, you know, government dealing with, you know what I mean? So they, but if you kind of make it where it's sort of an asset to them, you know, then it kind of changes their mind. So that's what I do now. I do mostly workshops, education and outreach on water quality, natural resources, grazing practices, endangered species, that kind of stuff. Nice. Nice. That sounds, uh, yeah, that, that sounds like fun. Actually, it sounds like an interesting, uh, interesting niche, you know, yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've, I've learned a lot about golden cheek warblers. I, I had no idea um, sort of uh, what all these factors were that, that have been driving the decline and how this uh, all this new research that has been conducted over these you know the past decade or so has, has really dramatically changed uh, uh, sort of the, the, the picture that we have of this species and how it interacts with its environment. So, yeah, really fascinating stuff. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your perspective with us. No problem at all. I really enjoyed it, and and, and thanks for having me. Yep, you bet. Thanks, Mike. All right, that was our conversation with Mike Marshall from the Texas A&M Institute of Renewable Natural Resources. And what a fascinating conversation. The question of whether or not noise pollution is a limiting factor for the golden-cheeked warbler has come up a few times for us in our work with Jesse Parber and his Phantom Road research. And it's good to hear from Mike that this bird seems to be able to adapt quite well to these conditions. It's also pretty fascinating to hear about how much we've learned about the golden-cheeked warbler since its endangered species listing in the 90s. Regardless of what you think about the Endangered Species Act, it's clear that in this circumstance it has driven a dramatic increase in research interest to the species, and I'm fascinated by what scientists have learned about this bird over the past couple of decades. We'll have links to some of Mike's research papers that were discussed in this conversation on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC33. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC33. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Human Voice.